You know, it's probably my fault for going anywhere near Twitter as it relates to the Toronto Maple Leafs in any way. People who like the Toronto Maple Leafs are awful on Twitter. People who hate the Toronto Maple Leafs are awful on Twitter. But one thing in particular that really bothers me is these Leafs haters, mostly Senators fans, Habs fans, basically fans of any other Canadian team, that think they can get Leafs fans with the fact that Zach Hyman is playing really well at the start of this season, as if Leafs fans didn't know better than any other fan base in the NHL that Zach Hyman is an amazing hockey player. They're all like, oh, are you mad that uh, Hyman's got 10 points in 10 games? The Leafs let him go. What a big mistake. It's like, no, the Leafs knew how good Zach Hyman was. The Leafs knew how important he was to a top line. The Leafs knew how much he was going to prosper playing with Connor McDavid these are all like they knew that they were letting him go to a perfect situation for him in Edmonton but what they also knew is that Zach Hyman's 30 has a history of knee injuries and they didn't want to give him whatever the Oilers gave him I think it was seven years so Zach Hyman playing well this season is not unexpected it's not a big gotcha for the Leafs everyone knew that he would play well this season when he's five years from now and he's 35 and he can't play and the Oilers are still paying him seven or eight million dollars or whatever they gave him that's when the Leafs are banking on not signing that contract becoming valuable. But to act like it was a big own for the Leafs that they let him go because they had no idea what they had with Zach Hyman, it's ridiculous. Maybe I'm just falling for people's bait, but I don't like bait that is based in dumb arguments. Like there are so many legitimate things to make fun of the Leafs for. Don't make up things to make fun of the Leafs for. It's dumb. You make yourself look dumb. And you lose my respect. And you've heard of High Man, but why not High Podcast? Here's another episode of High Floor, Low Ceiling. Hello and welcome to another episode of High Floor, Low Ceiling. I'm Chris. I'm joined by Griffin. Griffin, how are you today? I'm doing well, Chris. How are you? I'm well. We are back on Zoom this week, which is uh, never what we love to do, but we love it when there's a specific reason for it. Griffin, we have a guest today, and it's not it's not a Clem style guest where they walk in unannounced and provide little to no content. This is a real guest, Griffin. Yeah, no, this was a pre-planned guest. We're on Zoom for a very good reason. Uh, joining us today is a Toronto Blue Jays reporter for Sports Illustrated, one of my good friends, Mitch Bannon. Uh, Mitch, thank you so much for joining us here. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm pumped to come on. It, it's I, it's good that I wasn't unannounced from the sounds of it. <laughs> yeah, Mitch is a, a high floor, low ceiling fan from way back, I'm sure. I'm assuming our first guest to ever have that that precious blue check mark next to their name. And Mitch, let's just start off. How did it feel when you got that verification and I assume validation that your life decisions like? had, been, had been worth it? Yeah, I've been working my entire life. Like I went to university hoping to get the check mark, didn't get it in my undergrad. So I'm like, okay, I need a postgrad degree now just to get that check mark. And so waking up on that Tuesday morning or whatever it was, seeing that they'd accidentally approved me it, it was great i'm never letting go of that i can't change my my twitter handle now though because i have to go through the reapplication process so i'm i'm just stuck with first name first name last name i can't i can't spice it up ever well we wish you all the best in those endeavors we pray we will join you and uh have a drink in the smoking lounge of uh verified twitter <laughs> members but of course like it, you... it feels more authentic this podcast it's got a good atmosphere uh yeah this will... Chris, now you 
we both wore our three-piece suits in honor of our first ever Twitter verified guest. Exactly. And Griffin, you are very, uh, you're always on top of the metrics for this episode. So I assume that we'll be doing huge numbers. Um, but of course, of course, Mitch, you, as Griffin alluded to, you covered the Blue Jays for Sports Illustrated. Uh, we are going to take a, take a turn down Toronto Lane once again and talk about the Blue Jays. They obviously, uh, obviously the World Series has just wrapped up recently. We're headed into that sort of winter meeting-ish time of the year. Uh, you mentioned before we started recording that Scott Boris was doing media availability. So that's uh, always a good sign. Like, do, are you, you know, we, we're, I'd say primarily basketball fans, and that's obviously a huge offseason. Do you, do you enjoy the MLB offseason or would you rather just be watching games? It's kind of different. I, I feel like I would definitely rather be watching games because then I know what my days are going to be like. I show up at the ballpark. I hang around for a couple hours, talk to some people, have a story I'm writing, write the game story, and then kind of get to go home. These days, and especially in the baseball offseason, there is zero schedule. There's a couple weekends in November and December where they do the GM meetings and the winter meetings. You get that one day that's the Rule 5 draft. That's a big one. But then other than that, anything can happen at any time. Time You can get Andrew Heaney signing earlier this week, or you could get Manny Machado signing in like the dog days of February. So it's you kind of have to be on your toes at all times. It's not like the NHL or NBA offseason where kind of everything happens in a day and you know what's going to happen. You know what the big dates are. So it's it, it can catch you off guard and there's not really great times for vacations either, which is tough. Right. And have you ever had like a like wake up and sort of like double take moment? Because like I remember when Kawhi Leonard, uh, that Kawhi Leonard trade happened to the Raptors. That was like first reported at like 4 a.m. or something. And then the trade was culminated the next morning. Do you have like a memory like that where you just suddenly look at your phone and something's been dropped on you, a bomb, so to speak? I wouldn't call it a bomb, but since I've been on the beat, last season's my my first season on the beat. And so it wouldn't necessarily be a bomb, but I did wake up to the the Adam Simber, Joe Panic trade. Uh, I guess Corey Dickerson involved in that one as well. And I looked at my phone being like, oh, they're like actually making trades right now because it was kind of everyone's talking about the need for a bullpen arm. And everyone's talking about how you can't make trades this time of year. I think it was the end of June. And uh, I, I woke up, saw a bunch of notifications, went to text messages. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess they've actually made the trade. I wouldn't necessarily classify that one as a bomb, but that's that's the closest thing I got. Well, Joe Panic, sort of the Kawhi Leonard of uh, of the Blue Jays, correct? Agreed. Right, that's Griffin? a great comp, yeah. Yeah, the Kawhi Leonard of utility infielders, I would say. <laughs> Defensive ace, just like Kawhi. Um <laughs> All right, well, do you want to let's get into the Blue Jays offseason in particular here, Chris? We've got an expert here. And just a couple mm-hmm. hours ago, a different MLB on insider, also Twitter fer- verified. I'm going to say that again. I messed that up twice. And just a couple hours ago, a different MLB insider, also Twitter verified, John Heyman of the MLB Network, reporting that the Blue Jays appearing very aggressive in the market would love to keep both Ray and Simeon. Nothing super new there, but it is yet another confirmation. Uh, and that's definitely the big question hanging over the Blue Jays offseason. Mitch, if you were in the GM chair, are you looking for one? Are you looking for two? Are you letting them both go? What's your move? I feel like you'd love to have them both back. Everything I've heard from the Jays organization is they're going to talk to both of these guys because they want at least one of them back. And I think that's kind of the key. They're going to talk to both because they, they want to bring one big player in. And the easiest way to do that is to probably bring one of those two guys back. but uh, And everyone likes to point out that Rodgers is a big spender. I just don't see how they kind of can bring both of them back. They're both going to get four plus years. They're both going to get 
at the very least 22, $23 million a year. And those would immediately become the second and third biggest contracts on their, on their books. And with guys like Vlad, Bo, they're going to have to get paid soon. I don't know if you want to commit two or three years to what would be 33, 34, 35 year olds. Um, I think it's more likely they really try to get one of them and they figure out what the value is to fill the other position. Obviously, if Semyon walks, you need an infielder. If Ray walks, you definitely need a pitcher. They probably need a pitcher even if Ray stays. So it's about kind of using them as their jumping off points for filling the rest of the puzzle pieces. Yeah, and it feels like in terms of sort of, there's a question of positional value, right? Because it feels like with Semyon, if you're looking for a Semyon replacement, you're probably still going to be shelling out, right? Because it is such a, a strong free agent class for those middle infielders. Whereas there's there's probably some more value to be had in a starting pitcher, even like, you know, looking down the line at older guys or injury guys and things like that, where the Jays have found some value in the past, right? Yeah, I think that's, you only have to look at Steven Matz and Robbie Ray last year as great examples of that. They can go into the trades and the, and the pitching market and get, okay, you're probably not going to get the Cy Young winner every single year. But you can get guys who are going to give you low fours ERA. And I think people are kind of sleeping on the current state of the Blue Jays rotation uh, with like Manoa has proved he can be a number one, number two. Like that's just a fact. Barrios can be at the very least a two. Ryu can be a number one, number two. He was maybe more of a four or five last year, but he's the type of guy who I kind of trust to make adjustments to the very least come back as a mid rotation guy next year. So you have right there your one, two, three. It's so easy to go into an offseason, fill out four, five. You bring in Robbie Ray, you have two aces, a couple number twos. Your rotation's looking a little better, but I think they can take what they have and go a bunch of different ways just because of the state of the rotation. And I agree the positional value there is just uh, pitchers have way higher upside. Like you can, if you can strike guys out, you can be a Cy Young winner. And so you can find value anywhere. Yeah, and yeah. talking Still- about... No, go ahead, Griffin. Oh, I was just going to say, and just speaking of that Blue Jays rotation, personally, I still have hope about Nate Pearson grabbing one of those spots as well. So there's definitely a lot of options there, even without Robbie Ray, who I don't know, just I feel like he's not going to go back to being the six and a half ERA guy that he was in 2020. But some team out there, whether it's the Angels or someone or the Blue Jays or someone else is going to give him a Cy Young winner's contract. And do you think he ever does this again? I just, this, everything in my gut tells me that this was a great season for Robbie Ray, but someone's going to pay him a lot more than he's worth. And it's money that could be better spent somewhere else. I think kind of off of that, obviously the safer option is Semyon. And even with his bad year last year, he's kind of proven he is at the very least an all-star, but Ray probably has the higher ceiling. You get an ace Mm. for four years. Like if you sign this contract and it's the Max Scherzer contract, that's one of the best contracts in baseball. Even if you give him 22, $23 million a year. Um, In terms of whether or not I think he repeats it, I think I'm a little higher on him just because he was consistent throughout the season. He had a few blips at the end of the year which he pitched more innings than anyone else. So that's kind of bound to happen. But I think the things he fixed were things that were fixable. Like he just started throwing in the strike zone. He had a a six block (laughs) performance early in the season against Kansas City. And from what I've heard and who I've talked to, he basically just said like, okay, I'm just going to stop throwing balls. I'm going to stop trying to throw on the edges. I'm just going to throw it down the middle and see what happens. And it works. So if it's a mental adjustment like that, and obviously there was some tiny mechanical adjustments, but if it's such an obvious change like that, I think it's uh, something that can continue. Does he win the Cy Young every year? Probably not. But I think he's going to be the guy who strikes out 200 batters in 170 innings 
and gives up a bunch of home runs and has a mid threes to maybe at the end of his career, low fours ERA. Yeah, and you mentioned Ryu earlier. It almost feels like they kind of showed with the Ryu signing, maybe to a lesser extent, the Springer signing, that they are willing, you know, maybe they're not willing to like totally open the pocketbooks and put all the money on the table, but they are willing to sign those kinds of deals where at the end of a, by the end of the contract, there maybe the player isn't playing to the value of their contract, but you're sort of paying for the first two years and then, you know, sort of see where the chips fall with the last two, right? Yeah, I think you, you kind of hit that one on the head there. He They're not going to probably sign these 10-year deals. I don't see them going out and being the Dodgers and Yankees and giving Corey Seager 10 years, $350 million. I, I just don't think they're that market. I don't think they're that team. I don't think it's how they view it as a good team building move. I don't think you're going to want that guy for 10 years. But will they give a Semyon or someone in that tier five years? I think they'd happily do that. So I think it's just kind of finding your spot in the market and finding the deals that can be had in that tier. Yeah, and it almost feels like Semyon is almost kind of the springer of this year, right? Where like he had a really good season. He's a little older than like, you know, the perfect prime sort of years. And then he probably ends up signing like a four or five year contract, which ends up like, and he, you know, he's not like the absolute tippy top of the free agent class, but he is like, you know, in the tier one, right? I think the one major difference is you look at kind of middle infield now and you look in at what center fielder was this year and last year. I think the Jays went after Springer because they knew they needed a center fielder. There wasn't everyday center field options on their team. And then they looked at the free agent class and the, the guys they could bring in and said, there's going to be no one else we want this year, no one else we want next year in the free agency class. So they were kind of willing to overpay. I don't know if they'll necessarily look at the middle infield market the same way this year. They have their shortstop in Bichette. Second base is, as good as Semyon was, a pretty easy position to fill. I feel like if they lose Semyon, they're going to be happy to kind of just try to fill in third base, which is a more pressing need. So I don't know if the positional needs or how they're going to look at those guys line up in the same way. It's more of a, they just really like Marcus Samuel as a person and a player. Yeah. And speaking of that uh, second base, third base type of hole, we've seen a lot of fan, or at least I've seen a lot of fan rumbling this year. People want the Blue Jays to go after Corey Seager, Carlos Correa. They want the Blue Jays to dip into this super deep market of elite shortstops that are all free agents this year. Uh, Mitch, do you think that's because people still think that Bo Bichette could be a bit of a defensive question mark at shortstop? Or is it just a case of the best players available this year happen to play shortstop and maybe you could do what you did with Simeon and move them to second or third if they need to be? Yeah, I think it's probably a bit of both. I know there's some people who still aren't sold as Bo at, as Bo for shortstop, but I am I, just by the eye test, by the stats, he's not going to be Andrelton Simmons. He's not going to be out there saving you 10 runs in a season at shortstop, but he's improved up until the point where right now he's a little bit below average. And so if you just extrapolate that production, obviously there's going to be a ceiling on it. But if he keeps getting better, he can be a slightly above average shortstop. And then in terms of the guys that are available, Bo is a better defensive shortstop than Corey Seager. He was better defensive shortstop than Trevor Story last year. I don't know if you're, aside from maybe Correa is kind of a different beast, and I think he's probably going to get paid like a different beast. But I don't know if the guys on the market are actually better shortstops than Bo defensively. So it kind of makes that point null and void. Like you're not going to go pay a guy $300 million to be the exact same thing Bo is. Yeah, and when you, so just to sort of switch gears here, when you look at the season that Jays had, it does feel like to some extent like they had the right guys at the right time and sort of all had had were firing on all cylinders to some extent. Obviously, I'd say the big thing was the injury issues with Springer. But so let, let's let's just say hypothetically that 
you either either you're bringing back Ray and Semyon or you're signing players who sort of are filling that production, the aggregate. Do you think that there's a possibility that the Jays like just take a step back anyway, simply because they had sort of all the guys doing the right things at the right time, especially during that sort of back half of the season? Yeah, that's something I've kind of thought a lot about. Like, what should the expectations for next year be? And it's an interesting one, because if you look at 91 wins as like the number, and then you, you're saying, okay, you're losing the Cy Young winner, and you're losing the guy who's probably coming third in MVP, that's like 10 wins. You're an 81 win team right there. And so even if you fill in six or seven wins, which would be a very expensive offseason, you're still taking a step back. But the number I kind of look at is their Pythagorean record, which is based off the the run production and the run differential. And they way underperformed that. And I think obviously there's people who know stats a lot better than I, but if you look at that and you look at the underperformance from the expected record, and then you look at losing your guys, those kind of make up the difference. So I would go into next year, if they make the ads, we kind of think they're going to make this offseason as probably targeting 91, 92 wins once again. Yeah, and, but, and so in terms, you know, obviously they just barely missed out on the playoffs last year. Do you think that like 91 wins, is that, does that get it done in the AL East? Or do you feel like sort of targeting that might sort of and make, make you end up on that treadmill where you're sort of always chasing Boston or Tampa or the Yankees or whoever who are, you know, maybe more in like the mid 90s, 100 win range. Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting that to try to avoid concerns of that, everything that Ross Atkins and Mark Shapiro in talks with the the media have been saying is we want to get better. They're making it clear that their offseason goal is to not kind of bring people back. It's to get better, which means if you look at it wins, that means winning one more game. If you look at it run differential, it means scoring more runs. So no matter uh, what way you look at it, if they're trying to get better, that means they want to to get the one win they kind of missed out on last year. And so it, it's going to be a tough division either way. But if their goal is to improve and if they're successful in improving, you have to assume it's probably going to be enough if, if they play up to the expectation. All right, Mitchell, just before we let you go, the other day, Major League Baseball did announce the final three nominees for their major awards. I thought maybe we could just do a bit of a rapid fire run through. Uh, we'll see if we get into any debates, but I think most of these are pretty open and shut. Uh, so we'll get all of our picks here, starting with the American League Most Valuable Player, the nominees Shohei Otani, Vladdy Guerrero Jr., and Marcus Simeon. Does anyone have an argument that is not Shohei Otani? Not going to hear anything from me on that one. A lot of a lot of shaking heads in the Zoom call. I think, you know, it, it's pretty clear to everyone. Like, obviously, I feel like the Guerrero MVP narrative is mostly maybe a bit of like a Toronto bubble where... <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there are some people who still like like looking at things like just raw offensive numbers. And he does have like, maybe a slight edge there. But, you know, like there's no way to like quantify what well, there, there are ways to quantify what Shohei Otani is. But like he's just so apart and separate and above everyone else. And also, like if you want to talk narrative, like has maybe like the craziest MVP narrative of all time. So I don't think there's any way that. It doesn't go to him. Yeah. Vladdy won the Hank Aaron Award. That was just announced. That's incredible. He should be more than happy with that. Let's move on to the National National League MVP. Interestingly, all six nominees for both MVP awards, none of them played in the playoffs. But this one, I think, is actually quite an interesting discussion. I think you could make a case for any of these three nominees, Bryce Harper, Juan Soto, and Fernando Tatis Jr. Chris, why don't we start with you? Who did you have for this one? Yeah, this is this is a really tough one. Um, I think the bloom maybe came off the rose a little bit with Tatis this year, not because he wasn't great, but just because like, you know, it's it's like any it's like a Luka Doncic or any like young player who maybe like 
doesn't who isn't sort of on that perfectly linear like skyrocketing development where like he was very good they missed the playoffs they probably underperformed their they maybe performed up to their preseason expectations but if you look at the at where they were halfway in the season they definitely underperformed that um you know griffin we talked a while back about the idea of like what does most valuable represent and I feel like if you look at Bryce Harper, like that's a team that maybe should have been like 20 wins under 500 if he's not on that team. So if you're going by that metric, I think that there it's a, like, a really solid case for Harper being the player who is bringing the most value to his team. Yeah, I'm, I kind of feel the exact same way. You're not going to get too much disagreement from me, unfortunately. Um, I, I would have voted Harper if I had a vote in this. And I maybe would have considered Austin Riley. I probably would have put him in my top three. And I thought it was kind of interesting he didn't make the top three. I think Harper uh, led the NL and F4. And so that's kind of my jumping off point. And you see, okay, is there any reason to, to disagree with this? And he also led the NL and OPS. And you just kind of go down. And it's he was the best hitter. He's a good defensive player. I think if you just look at player value, uh, he was just a, a touch better than the other nominees yeah it's a shame that Jacob deGrom got hurt because then we could be having a really interesting conversation but Harper's my pick as well led Major League Baseball in slugging and OPS as you said Mitch and then over the last 67 games of the season when the Phillies were pushing for the playoffs Bryce hit 342 with a 41 on base percentage and a 740 slugging percentage so that's those are just insane numbers obviously a smaller sample size but clutch gene I love Bryce Harper. I'm a big Harper guy, so he's my pick as well. AL Cy Young, I think, in my opinion, the clear-cut uh, favorite is Robbie Ray. Any any disagreements? I think I'm almost astounded how much conversation people are having about this award. I understand it's the New York effect, the Garrett Cole effect, but at the end of the year, going to those final starts, even after that bad Yankees start, I was just looking at the leaderboards. I'm like, okay, this isn't even going to be close. Like, I don't see how you can give uh, this award to anyone but Robbie Ray. I think he's just striking so many people out. He leads every single statistic that old school and new school people look at for this award. So I think it should be open and cut. And, but I see people still kind of having the Garrett Cole case. So I'll be interested to see how many first place votes Cole gets. Yeah, for me, it's like, if you're if you're leading the league in strikeouts and whip, then that's sort of like the one-two punch of like sort of basic and advanced stats that like sort of take any case away from other players. Like even though like I don't think he's head and shoulders, maybe like I, I don't think he's maybe like an Otani where I would be baffled by anyone else voting for him. But he does feel like the clear you know guy who comes out of that group of three for sure. Yeah, I got faith in the writers on that one. I think they'll get it right. The National League Cy Young, uh, a little closer. We got Corbin Burns of the Milwaukee Brewers, Max Scherzer, and Zach Wheeler. Mitch, you got a, a favorite of those? Yeah, I think this one was one of the closer awards, just looking at it. If I had to vote on this one, I think I would go Corbin Burns. But I think most of the season, obviously DeGrom, I thought was a shoe-in, even if he only came back for a few starts at the end of the year, and then that never happened. Um but yeah, I would vote Corbin Burns. I think probably Wheeler two, Scherzer three, but those two are really close for me. Yeah, that's I'm... interesting. Oh. oh, go ahead. All right, I was just going to say that's interesting. Definitely an honorable mention to Jacob deGrom. I actually had Max Scherzer as my winner and he was your third. So I think that speaks to how close these guys are. I mean, leading the league with a 0.86 whip and a one batters hitting 185 against him for the year to me is just wild at the age of 37. Then after he joins the Dodgers, goes 7-0 with a 1.98 ERA. It's also been a few years. Max Scherzer hasn't won a Cy Young since 2017. 
I say it's about time he gets his fourth and I mean, maybe elevates himself to the best pitcher of the 21st century. I think he had the uh, best season. Yeah. It's an interesting case for sure. Because like, I think, especially now looking back, we sort of see the Dodgers as a more flawed team than maybe they looked like during the regular season. But yeah, like, I mean, he had a fantastic year. It's a weird situation where a Cy Young winner and MVP is traded midseason. That maybe happens a little more in baseball than in other sports. But yeah, I think I, I, I almost feel like I'm not educated enough to make a firm call here. Like Corbin Burns had a great year. Obviously Scherzer, you know, sort of leads in narrative and things like that sort of soft uh, points in his favor. But I, I think either Burns or Scherzer would be a more than deserving winner for sure. And then Wheeler is like, just, just good, <laughs> like really, really good all around. And then you can't, you know, you can't really say much more than that. He's, he's maybe the least interesting pick, if not the least deserving. Made a lot of innings for sure. All right. So we've got some disagreement there. I'll take the, I'll take the outvote Corbin Burns, the HFLC pick. Let's get even a little more rapid now that we're getting into rookies of the year. Wander Franco and Randy Rosarena, sort of the two main nominees, Luis Garcia in there as well. Uh, for me, if Franco had played a full season, he probably would have won. But as is, I'm giving it to Randy Rosarena. Yeah, same. I'm a Randy guy too. I think it's it is kind of interesting with the playoffs last year, but. Uh, if you look at the season this year, just like, okay, he's a rookie. This is his year. I think it's his award to lose. Yeah, it's weird to look at that season as almost disappointing compared to last year's playoffs. But yeah. I think he is the the clear-cut guy. And Franco is going to be like really, really good next year, I think. For sure. Jumping over to the senior circuit. Uh, I should have put down first names. That's what they call the National League. Stop laughing at my baseballisms. I don't know things uh, about baseball. <laughs> uh, we got Jonathan India, Trevor... Rogers and a third man whose last Dylan name Carlson. is Carlson. Dylan. I thought it was Dylan. I wanted to make 100% sure. I'm picking Jonathan India, the second baseman for the Cincinnati Reds. I think this is maybe the least close award. I think India had a crazy year and the kind of Rogers was on pace and then he just stopped playing. Uh, I'm not educated enough to know why or what happened there but he just yeah. missed a bunch of time. I thought he it was his award for sure. But um, yeah, I think this is India, a lock. This would be the only, well, not the only. Otani, I would say, is a lock. This is my number two lock. Yeah, much like uh, in 1921, when Mahatma Gandhi assumed leadership of the National Congress, India had a crazy year. Am I right, folks? I should have known where <laughs> you were going with that. I didn't, and it was a wild ride. Um, all right, just quickly into the managers here. Kind of surprised Alex Cora did not receive an American League Manager of the Year nomination, but your nominees are Dusty Baker of the Houston cheater. Astros. He's a cheater. Sorry. Just go ahead. Oh, yes. Well, that could uh, impact things. Kevin Cash of the Tampa Bay Rays and Scott Cervase of the Seattle Mariners. Uh, again, an, an award that looks a little different come the postseason, but I think for regular season, you got to give it to Kevin Cash of the Tampa Bay Rays. Interesting. I think I, I disagree on this one. I think this is manager of the year. I think is the hardest award to vote for. Cause like, what are you for really sure. voting for? If you don't cover the team every single day, you don't know what that guy did. You don't know what the decisions he made every single day. So you kind of have to go off team narrative. And so I probably would have given it to service. I probably would have, if you just look at the run differential, how much they over improve, obviously there's probably some luck in there. There's some other factors. But some of that's the manager. And so if it's the only one I can like look at the stats and quantify, I'm I'm super happy to give that to him. If they had made the playoffs, I think he would have 
for sure won this award, but even falling a game short, I think he's he's got a good case. Oh, yeah. if they had made the playoffs, he would have had it locked up. It was a very, very tight race. Yeah, this category tends to be like the most overperforming team. Um, and they may be trying to get away from that a little bit uh, as we, you know, get more into advanced analytics and things like that. But that that tends to be what it is. I would agree with you, Griffin. I would give it to Kevin Cash as well. I think like in terms of a, a casual fan, they probably know the name Kevin Cash because like he is so active from a strategic standpoint, I feel like. And then also like sort of repeating his results every year with different lineups and things like that. I think that is maybe like, he is the most guy who you can most clearly look to and say, he is he's really managing them and like doing things yeah he's the common denominator for a raised team that has had a lot of turnover but is always successful yeah and then we'll finish it off with maybe i might put this down as a third lock i think in the playoffs we saw that uh, brian snitker is maybe the best manager in the national league but in terms of the regular season your nominees are craig council of the brewers gabe kapler of the giants and mike schilt of the cardinals is it anyone but Gabe Kapler for the National League Manager of the Year? No, nope. I was. <laughs> yeah, the what the Giants did, did this year was truly impressive, and so this is kind of the award to to give an honor to that Giants team. Yeah, yeah I think the that's, most Manager of the Year season of all time. Yeah, I think that's exactly the right way to put it. That it's like this is the award that the Giants get. Like they don't really have an MVP, or if there is an MVP, it's maybe it is Gabe Kapler. So like that, <laughs> it, this is their their World Series since they did not win the world series um but i just there's there's no way they were like what like probably 30 wins better than what people expected them to be at like a minimum yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe 35 but that'll do it uh for this first baseball chat mitch thank you so much for joining us where can the people find you online you can find me at mitch bannon on twitter you can go to si.com slash mlb slash blue jays if you want um but yeah, yeah, at Mitch Bannon on Twitter is probably your best bet for finding news this offseason, finding some of my stories. Yeah, I was just uh, having a scroll before we started recording. Tons of information, tons of in-depth stuff about the Blue Jays if that does interest you. So thank you so much for joining us and providing some, some someone who knows what they're talking about, I would say, is the <laughs> biggest thing you bring to the table. Uh, but we are going to take a break and we will be right back with more High Floor, a Low Ceiling. <laughs> And welcome back to High Floor, Low Ceiling. Thank you so much to Mitch Bannon for joining us for that first segment. But now we're we're relaxed now, Griffin. Is that safe to say the pressure's off of us? Yeah, there's no one in this room has a blue check mark anymore. I've unbuttoned, I've loosened the tie. But yeah, big thanks to Mitch. That was a lot of fun having him on. We'll have to have him on again sometime. We are in, we're in an immersive Zoom. I, I want people to know that we're in an immersive Zoom experience right now. We're sitting outside by a fire. Maybe I'll, I'll take a screenshot and post it to the, uh, to the Twitter account because this just truly looks terrible. No, this is lovely. This is a very fall vibe. Uh, we're still a couple weeks away from Christmas season. But right now we're in the fall vibes. We've got a lovely fireplace behind us, a pumpkin that says Zoom on it. Uh, this is a great experience this is i think warmer than our studio yeah i feel great um but we are going to press on uh we're moving from the major league baseball to the national league of football and we're going to it, we're it's it's a little bit of an around the nfl i think we're gonna we're gonna talk about some nfl teams we're gonna sort of do a check-in i think uh because how, how many how many weeks are we into the season here? Uh, we are nine weeks into the season. Teams have played either eight or nine games. Before we get into the NFL, I just want to say, Aaron Rodgers, I used to really, really like you. You suck. Uh, retire. 
and <laughs> never come back into the public eye. Yeah, I can't quote. believe that the Packers are uh, getting the good side of this divorce all of a sudden. Well, maybe there are no winners here. Packers are not innocent in this either. Uh, Danny DeVito famously on Antonin Scalia. Look that up if you haven't, uh, if you aren't familiar. But let's talk about the playoff picture in the National Football League, Griffin. It's an interesting playoff picture because, well, you you sort of uh, teed this up, but the idea of is seven teams too many, I think, is, is something that's weighing heavily on, on minds right now. The New England Patriots currently own the third wild card in the AFC with a record of five and four. The Atlanta Falcons, who refuse to die and are honestly maybe maybe like turning it around to becoming like a team to root for again are the third wild card in the NFC with four and four what do you what do you think about these two wild card teams especially in the NFC where it's the Falcons and then right below them the Panthers the Vikings and the Seahawks and the 49ers are all at three and five compared to the Atlanta's four and four yeah I mean it's just like when I was looking at the playoff picture in order to prepare for our NFL segment I looked at the bottom of the list here and I was like these are not teams that are playoff caliber I mean they are because they're in but I just think this expanded playoffs for the NFL was unnecessary it's not like at six teams per league there were consistent cases of teams going oh this really good team just didn't make the playoffs like we see in baseball sometimes like I think in the NFL most years 16 games was enough to separate the good teams from the bad especially now that they've added a 17th game that's just an even bigger sample size so I don't think the 17 playoff is necessary I mean, if you look at it, let's say the Chiefs get that seventh spot in the uh, AFC instead of the Patriots, and then let's say Russell Wilson was healthy all year, so the Seahawks are in that last spot in the NFC instead of the Falcons, then I think it looks a little better. But there are still teams in there that aren't don't strike fear in anyone's heart. The Raiders and the Steelers and the AFC, the, the Raiders somehow hanging on despite having the worst season in professional sports history off the field. So I just think the NFL, there's too many playoff teams. You're getting teams that aren't anything special making the playoffs just to either a go out with a whimper in the first round or catch some team on an injury or something and rob the fans of seeing the best teams when it really comes down to it in the championship games and the Super Bowl. I don't see any upside. Upside is one more playoff game. I don't see any upside for the fans and I just don't think it's necessary. Chris, what about you? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting situation. You mentioned the Raiders and the Steelers. They would be in the playoffs without a third wild card. Like, they are they are the fifth and sixth seed ostensibly. Maybe not the most yeah, inspiring. Yeah, but I just think they'll continue to drop, and by the end, they won't be. Especially the Raiders. They can't keep winning through all this. Yeah, I mean, I think there are some sort of extenuating circumstances. I think a big thing is the lack of a real, like, contender out and out contender in the AFC like you look at the the standings all the way down there are nine teams that currently have five wins whether they're five and three or five and four and then you have the Colts as well who are four and five so it's just a very a very thick middle and usually if you have like a a middle like that you usually have a team that sort of rises out of it but your number one seed in the AFC right now is the Tennessee Titans, and then the Ravens at two, and then the other playoff teams, as we alluded to, the Raiders and the Steelers at five and six, the Pats at seven, and then the three, four are the Chargers and the Bills. So not really a team. Well, let's let's even take a step back here and look at the whole league. Is is there a team that you would call a Super Bowl contender? Like, is, 
it's hard to pick one because there, it feels like everyone is almost on the same playing field to some extent. And it's hard to be like, like Arizona's the best team in the NFL right now. I think that's pretty obvious, but they're not a team where I'm like, yeah, Arizona, they're going to win the Super Bowl. Yeah, I definitely don't think at this point there are any clear-cut favorites for the Super Bowl in either league, which I think is a lot of fun. Like, this is great. The NF- the NFC sort of has four teams that I think you could say are cut above, whereas the AFC has the Bills and the Ravens with the Chiefs always lurking in the background there. So that's you could call seven teams that I think are bona fide Super Bowl contenders, but su- certainly no favorites right now. And hey, it's going to be a great second half of the season. Yeah, I think probably, we maybe should have done this segment like four weeks from now, or maybe we can check in a few weeks from now, just because there is that morass in the AFC. Like, I think, I feel pretty good about the Chargers and the Bills, and it's crazy that both of those teams have the same record as the Steelers and the Raiders. And then, so let's look at the five and four teams here. So you have... The Pats, who are currently in the wild card based on conference win percentage, that classic tiebreaker. And then also at five and four, you have the Chiefs, the Cleveland Browns, the Cincinnati Bengals, and the Denver Broncos. So it might be safe to cut the Broncos out of that equation. I mean, they're not a bad team. They just actually had a big win against the Bills. Um, but uh, of, let's just talk, sort of break down those four. Pats, Chiefs, Browns, and Bengals. Who do you see making the big run out of those four in in the second half of the season. I mean, it's funny. They just put up an uninspiring win against the very beat up Green Bay Packers. They've got a tough schedule the rest of the way. So even though every instinct in your body screams the Chiefs, it'll be tough for them. They'll have to pick it up. This is not something where they can just, oh, let's just flip the switch. And now it's time to start winning. Like they have very real problems on this team. They're going to have to break a lot of very bad habits to get into the playoffs. But I still think that they've made the Super Bowl two years in a row. They won the Super Bowl. They've got the best quarterback on the planet. They've got a very good coach in Andy Reid. I think that if you had to pick one of those four teams... I think the Chiefs are going to make the playoffs until the day they're mathematically eliminated. Yeah, it almost, and maybe we've talked about this in a previous episode, I can't remember, but the, the Chiefs remind me of last year's Lakers, where it, it always, because they had that pedigree and because they have that star player who, you know, you can make the argument that Patrick Mahomes is the best player in the NFL. It always feels like they're in it, even when like everything from their record to their numbers to everything makes you feel like they are aren't as good as what they seem to be. You know, they are coming off of what three wins in their last four. Uh, they had that really, really bad loss to the Titans uh, where Mahomes got injured. I think I think this is just going to end up being a lost year for them where Mahomes is he he isn't his usual self. He definitely seems like a guy who could have a bounce back year, especially you know, we talk about this in the NBA, it's maybe a little less true in the NFL, but if, if you miss the playoffs and then you actually have like a full off season to sort of recuperate and things like that, that can make a real difference. Yeah. Maybe Mahomes was just upset that he'll win every award in his career, except comeback player of the year. So now he wants a chance to get that one as well. Maybe he's doing this on purpose. Precisely. Um, so, you know, if, if we are counting the Chiefs out, the the Browns, the Bengals, and the Patriots, they are all teams that have some serious flaws, I would say. But I, you almost would say that the team that's been the best of those four so far, even though like they, they've sort of been 
just hanging around under the radar is the Patriots, right? Yeah, I think so. The Bengals have certainly had weeks where they've looked like the best team in that group and certainly a playoff team. And then other weeks where they've looked very young and inexperienced, which is fair because they are quite young and inexperienced. So I think that the Bengals are doing everything they can to reinforce that uh, stereotype of a young, talented shaky team Uh, of those three the Patriots have looked good I feel like the Browns just have so much talent on their roster even without Odell Beckham Jr. Uh, I think that quarterback is an area where they could improve but obviously that's not and that's not something for this season the defense is just so good the pass rush Miles Garrett I think that the Browns if I had to choose out of those three they'll be the ones because talent I think will win out at the end of the day yeah and speaking of defense you know the Pats have been a really strong defense as well uh they're I don't have the you know advanced stats right in front of me but they're fourth in the league in points allowed which is you know pretty significant uh th- their schedule is still a question but they have played teams tough by and large uh, they have the two-point loss to the Bucks. They have the overtime loss to the Cowboys. And then other than those two, so that they're four in their last six with their two losses coming in overtime and then a two-point loss. Granted, their wins are against the Texans, the Jets, the Panthers, and then the Chargers. They sort of have a mixed schedule coming up. They uh, Towards the end of the season, they play the Jags and the Dolphins, who will be thoroughly out of playoff contention at that point. They have some games coming up against the Browns and the, and the Falcons who are, you know, fighting for a spot right now. And then they sort of have this middle where they, this is really where they would either get in or fall out is they play the Titans on the 28th of November, the Bills, the Colts, and then the Bills again. That's really like the the make or break time for them. Uh, But let's move on to talk about uh, the team that's actually leading the AFC, which is your Tennessee Titans. Uh, That was the U was to the... That is insulting. (laughs) The U was to the listener, not not to you personally. Okay, good. Uh, But so they have sort of against all odds carved out a seven and two record here. You have Derrick Henry out for the season. Is... Is it crazy to say they should be worried about their playoff position, much less their, you know, top, top four seed position? I mean, just because this AFC is so bunched up behind them, there's a lot of teams that are, like you said, at five and four or five and three, only two or one and a half games behind them. I could easily see a world in which they go tumbling out of the playoffs. Of course, they did on the other hand, look phenomenal this week against the LA Rams. So it's tough to say. It seems like the Titans should not be good, but they went in against a Super Bowl contender in the LA Rams and beat the crap out of them in Los Angeles, to be frank. Um, <laughs> to be frank, they were in Los Angeles. Well, the tip I meant to apply the to be frank. I cannot, I cannot slip around Chris. Chris will call you out if you slip. But yes. Uh, They beat the crap out of them, to be frank, even in Los Angeles. So the Titans, everything in my head says to be worried, but so far they look pretty good. Derrick Henry might have been the problem the whole time. Sure, really schedule they've got. Yeah, that's the big thing is the schedule. Um, Just to, to your point, like some really good wins for them as well. They had the overtime win against the Colts. They had that great win against the Rams and then the blowed against the Chiefs and the win against the Bills. And both of those are sort of like, Oh, the Titans. And then even the game against the Rams going kind of like, oh, the Titans, they did that. But it's like, this is ostensibly the best team in the AFC. Um, yeah, but- they still haven't played the Texans yet. They've got two games left against the Texans. They've got one against the Jaguars and one against the two and seven Dolphins. So that's probably four wins right there on top of the seven that they already have. 
So they might not finish with the number one seed in the AFC, but I'd say there's a better chance of them finishing with the number one seed than of them being in serious trouble to make the playoffs come the last couple of weeks of the season. Yeah, precisely. Um, let's maybe look to the NFC now, because as you alluded to, there are some serious contenders here. So if you're in the position of, you know, a Saints or a Falcons, it'll be interesting because right now you have that, uh, that NFC West battle between the Rams and the Cardinals. So probably whichever one of those teams wins out in the division will end up being the first seed, maybe. I think that's, uh, there's a decent chance of that. Um, So let's, if you're coming out of position of a a lower seated playoff team, or I guess, or the Dallas Cowboys (laughs) is the other team (laughs) that, uh, that's in there. But so the Cardinals, the Packers, the Buccaneers, and the Rams, who are you most afraid of? And I guess, is it, is it just Green Bay is the team that you would want to play in this position? I mean, Green Bay is, as they have been for years, a great offense, not super scary on defense. But honestly, obviously, these are four great teams. Picking between them is very tough. You look at the four of them and you go, can I play none of them? Can I play the Cowboys, please? But if I had to choose, I think I'm looking right at the top of the standings at the Arizona Cardinals. Wow. I think that the... Tom Brady slash Aaron Rodgers factor scares me too much. This is barring, of course, a prolonged absence for Aaron Rodgers on behalf of being a dumb idiot. But the Rodgers slash Bucks factor, the Rodgers Brady factor scares me too much. They just go out there. They're going to win a playoff game. The Rams have this amazing defense. They added Von Miller and they've got this great offense, this great receiving core. Matt Stafford looking like a whole new man now that he's out of Detroit. So I feel like the Arizona Cardinals, as good as they have been, have the least sort of proven track record. And it's a big gamble because they could come out and absolutely smack me around. But any of these four teams could. So I think they are the ones that I'm least scared of. What about you? I I very much disagree with you. I think the Cardinals are, I, I was doubtful of the Cardinals a few games into the season when we talked about those three and no teams. I'm less doubtful of them now. They have maintained those defensive numbers. You know, they are still one of the best defensive teams, both in terms of, uh, mainly in terms of the their passing yard or passing defense is just really strong. Um, you know, I, I just, I have faith in them. Obviously, I think you're right. It's a great point that proven track records do mean something in the playoffs. But also, like, we have seen players, like, even a Brady or a Rodgers, we've seen players lay eggs in the playoffs before. Like, it's not like a good quarterback is immune from really stinking it up in a playoff game, you know? No, and obviously, a proven track record starts somewhere. It started somewhere for Brady. It started exactly. somewhere for Rodgers. It, I think it will start this year for Kyler Murray as he leads the cards on a deep playoff run. But I think... If I were just to rank those four teams out of how likely I think they'll be to make the Super Bowl, I would put the Cardinals fourth. Yeah, I I, I alluded to this. I feel like it's the Packers. I really, I may be most scared of the Rams. Like they're just really good. And like, and I feel like their style is pretty well suited to, you know, a playoff football where they can really lock down on defense and then play more, maybe more of like a short yardage game on offense. I think that really benefits their style. Um, Obviously the Buccaneers, you can never count them out by any stretch of the imagination. And so I feel like you then go towards the Packers who, you know, are pretty lacking in terms of skill position guys. 
obviously the Rodgers thing it you know he'll he'll be back shortly I imagine but it's I think he's supposed to play against the Seahawks this weekend right but I feel like it's going to have repercussions and obviously that's a very unquantifiable uh concept but I I think that it's a very it's a real bad vibes team if I can sort of put on my Bill Simmons cap here like they're they just seem to have a lot not going for them uh they're you know like their their offensive skill position guys apart from Aaron Jones are not all that you know inspiring and obviously Devonte Adams as well but like it's just you look at their roster and you don't feel like it's hard to get excited about them and then their defense which has actually been really strong this year I don't know I, I just it's it's a real like just vibes alone like they are they are the team that if I went up two touchdowns on them I would feel most confident about winning the game against. Does that make sense? I definitely see what you're saying. And there are bad vibes around this team right now because of their quarterback, for sure. But as much as my respect for him has taken a catastrophic nose drive into the ground this week, Aaron Rodgers, I think, is still the most talented player to ever walk onto a football field. And in the end, there is not a single... I just feel like when you're watching the Packers, there's never a situation where you think, oh, Aaron Rodgers couldn't get out of this. He's always found a way. And this has been, I I know that the defense is not anything to write home about and the skill players, aside from Jones and Adams, aren't that special. But that's the way it's been for his entire career in Green Bay. And I still think that he's more than capable, especially if they can get a home game at Lambeau assuming that the Lambo fans aren't booing their own team now because Aaron Rodgers sucks. I think that they'll be a tough, tough out come playoff time. Yeah, I mean, but at the same time, like, you know, last year we saw them lose at home in a in a an NFC championship game, to be fair. Like they're usually good. It feels like the Packers are good to win about one playoff game a year. Uh and maybe not go much or you know, they they feel like a real NFC championship team. <laughs> Like, it's hard for me to see them going beyond that. And, you know, obviously we're talking about teams to face in the first round. So maybe that's a point in their favor, but it's just hard for me to feel great about them. And whereas I, I do get... the, the Cardinals and the Rams and to a lesser extent, the Bucks, like I don't feel great about the Bucks, but we did just see them win a Super Bowl in a year where I'd say most people did not feel great about the Bucks. And so that sort of, works in their favor and then that sort of leaves the Packers as the odd team out to some extent I do get where you're coming from with that especially when you're talking about these four teams competing against each other there comes a point where having the best quarterback on earth it just isn't enough against these incredibly deep teams that these other three rosters are boasting I also think that the Packers have the worst coaching out of these four teams so maybe you've convinced me on the Packers, uh, maybe not representing the NFC in the Super Bowl, but I think in the first round, that's more like that's where you're going to be more able to catch an inexperienced team uh, with maybe some aggressive play, some pass rushing. And so that's why I would choose the Cardinals specifically in the first round. Yeah, I think and I think I definitely see your point as well. I just feel like to some extent teams get written off a lot for not having experience, whereas, you, you know, you're going to see a team that like does not have experience do something eventually like we saw the suns go to the finals last year you know they the cardinals almost in some ways remind me of the 2015 warriors where we sort of saw them starting to put it together the year before they didn't quite do what they maybe should have that year and then the next year they just come out and they're suddenly like beating up on everyone and that is what it kind of feels like to some extent and it's 
much like those war- that Warriors team, it was hard to take them super seriously as a contender, even going into the playoffs. So that eventually, obviously, they they turned into a true championship level team. I, I like that comparison a lot. I, all I know is that I'm already excited for the NFL playoffs. I think the NFL has a very underrated postseason. People like to talk about the NHL a lot, but I think the NFL has one of the best postseasons that single game elimination might not always give you the best team, but it gives you some great, great games. And I think that'll just about do it for us today here on high floor, low ceiling, Chris. I, I think it will. Uh, thank you all for joining us. We're, we're back on zoom this week. But uh, I, I imagine we'll probably be in the studio next week. Uh, thank you again to Mitch Bannon for joining us for that segment. Uh, if you know of any verified Twitter people who would like to make an appearance on High Floor, Low Ceiling, you can tweet at us at HFLC Podcast. And hey, maybe we'll get a blue check mark pretty soon. Ooh, that would be exciting. Can you imagine if the podcast got the check mark before us? I would be such a proud parent. Sure. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter as well at C House and Jan. You can uh, follow my podcast, my other podcast, excuse me. I'm sorry, Griffin, I didn't be, mean to uh, denigrate goth, uh, high floor, low ceiling. Your, you your can, secondary podcast. Yeah, you can follow my backup podcast, Got the Runs, at Got the Runs Pod. It's a podcast about comic books uh, and comic book creators. We are currently covering the great Brian K. Vaughn, working on Why the Last Man. I don't think I've ever asked, are you, are you a comics fan at all, Griffin? Uh, I'm a comic book movies fan. Mm-hmm. I would imagine you turn your nose up at that, but no, <laughs> I, I never true. got, I, I got a lot of Archie comics here in my room behind me, but that was about the extent of what I got into in comic books as a kid. Well, if you're like Griffin and you have never been a comics fan, I think that uh, the series we're covering right now, Why the Last Man is a great jumping on point. Uh, it's a, it's about a, a world with no men. Sounds like a freaking dream. Am I right? Yeah. Tell me about it. Uh, you can follow Griffin at Griffin Porter 97. You can also listen to his podcast. Griffin, you want to tell them about uh, about the OUA In Conversation podcast? That yeah, called? if you are specifically one of our listeners from Ontario or Canada, I've got another podcast, OUA In Conversation. Every week, me and my co-host, Justine Jones, we sit down with a different Ontario University athlete, get to hear their stories, talk about their sports, talk about the life of a student athlete. It's a lot of fun. Most recent episode, we talked to a... Uh, rugby player from the royal military college glenn butler so be sure to check that out wherever you get your podcasts also follow uh mitch one more time at mitch bannon and check out his writing on sportsillustrated.com si.com thank you all so much for listening (laughs) thank you and we will see you next week you're not used to the outro i'm not it's clunky mcclunky star wars reference bye now bye